Okay, please uh, open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. We are, it's our great privilege, as always, this time on the Lord's Day to open our Bibles to study the Word of God and to hear from Him, to see Him from its pages. For the Bible is often called the self-disclosure of God. That which we know about God in a saving, intimate way is only through the Scripture, His revelation. So we have that copy before us there. So go to Ephesians chapter 1 and let us come with expectant, humble hearts to not only hear from Him, but to see Him from its pages. Now we come here to chapter 1, verse 15. That's where we will pick it up. We will read down through 23, this last section. And you will quickly notice as we read through here, this is the Apostles' Prayer on behalf of these Christians in Ephesus. And I would have us pay close attention to the content of this inscripturated prayer as we read through here. So as not only to mimic what Paul is doing here, but but to learn what it is that God, through Paul, desires for them, and therefore desires for us who believe as well. So through Paul's prayer, we see the heart of God for his people, that we should mimic how Paul prays, and also we should see what it is he's praying, so we understand what God desires for his people, so that we too can... Obey this, pray this, live this, learn from this. And so this is a great opportunity to see the heart of the Apostle Paul. And as you will see as we work through here, Paul is praying that these Ephesian believers would come to know God more and more and to understand to deeper levels that which He has accomplished already for them, for us, and therefore that which is available to us. That's what's coming from this text. It's really incredible. So if you would pick it up with me in verse 15, we will read down through 23 and notice the, the, the prayer of the apostle. For this reason, 15, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what, is, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. 19. What is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. An amazing text, obviously. We see there, this is the prayer of Paul, what he prays for, and it finishes with the glorious person of Jesus Christ. And so, when you go back to verse 15, <clears throat> you notice that right after Paul is assured of the true regeneration of these people, that these people truly are of the elect, because they have faith in the Lord Jesus, verse 15, and they have love for all the saints. 
he, he, after he's assured of their true salvation and that they belong to God because they trust Christ, the evidence of their faith is love for the saints. Okay? Um, faith has works and works is love. And this is what Paul is saying. I see that. Once I've heard that, I'm assured you're of the elect. You're in the body of Christ. Therefore, verse 16, I do not cease giving thanks while making mention of you in my prayers. Verse 16 is, is a great, simple verse, but think of this. He lets them in on a habitual practice of his, which is evidence not only of his love for Christ, but his love for them. He's praying for them unceasingly, giving thanks. In verse 16, how encouraging it must have been for these believers to hear this, that the great apostle takes them with him by name into the presence of God. By name, he takes them into the throne room of grace in praise on their behalf. And he says in verse 16, to be constantly giving thanks to God for them. In his other epistles, as you know, as, as you're familiar with the New Testament, Paul also mentions giving thanks for those believers. He is constantly giving thanks for God's people. He is constantly giving thanks for God's people as he intercedes for them, as we looked at last time together. But I would say this as we go through verses 15 and 16, as you recognize the, the commitment of Paul to take God's people with him to the throne room of grace, let us do the same. Let us see the people of God as God sees them. His elect, his children that were predestined, his redeemed, his forgiven, his special possession, his bride. Who are we to, to mistreat those whom God has placed such a special affection on? Paul takes them constantly before the throne. We should do the same. We should, should have the very same high opinion of the saints before us. They will be with him forever in his presence. Therefore, they will be with us forever. Might as well practice now, right? Might as well practice now. Taking them before the throne. As we do so, I remind you of 1 Peter 5. Listen, please, to 1 Peter 5 as we go there. We looked at this last week, but just to remind us. This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will... He hears us, verse 15, and we know, if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from Him. So let us take that same confidence into the throne room of grace as we take the people of God in our spheres with us to pray on their behalf, knowing, have confidence that that which you are asking on behalf of another, God hears it and He will answer accordingly. Right. So that just should really motivate prayer. Now, if I go back to Ephesians, we come to verse 17, still looking at the priority of prayer here, but look at what happens here in verse 17. He clearly defines here, and I, we can't move too fast, but we won't camp here as long as we probably should. In verse 17, you notice what it says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you, okay, in verse 17, Paul clearly defines here, for his readers, the object of his prayers. To whom does he pray? To whom does he go before? He could have just said God. would have been sufficient. We all understand. We all could have said, yeah, we're going before God to pray. But he's very specific here. Purposely says, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. 
He's approaching that person, that this God on their behalf, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, he's already identified God in the very same way. It says, blessed, verse 3, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the first part there, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the emphasis then for him to identify God in this manner? What is his purpose? What is he trying to put forward? The God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of this. Our Lord, our Master, our Sovereign. He's elevated. That right there elevates him. We are subservient to him. He is our Master. Our Master Yeshua, that speaks of his humanity, the name given to him in Matthew 1, when he took on flesh, he became the Savior of Israel. We name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Yes, so that speaks of his humanity. That name was given to him at the incarnation, at his birth. Christ, Christos, is from, it speaks of the anointing, the anointed one. That takes you back to 2 Samuel 7. That's part of the Davidic covenant. That's part of his humanity. So think of this. Jesus Christ, in his humanity, God becoming a man, came as the Savior of the world, who is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He is the King of kings. He is the Savior of the world, and he is our master, our sovereign the God of that great person is the one to whom Paul goes. Right? Why does he speak in that manner? To give confidence to, of the assurance of the answer to the prayer. The one to whom I am going, very specifically, it's not just God, but it's God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the very same God to whom he prayed. And isn't it interesting? It speaks, it's, it's emphasizing the humanity of Christ in this way. The greatest the greatest human to ever walk on the planet is the one's God to whom I go, right? Because he's also our God. What does it say about the possibility of the answer to the prayer? Pretty high, right? Pretty high. That's our God. Through Jesus Christ, I have the very same God, the God of the Bible, we, we're, so, we're so familiar with these things. We're so familiar with theology. We're so familiar with the Bible. And we become so super familiar with God. God is wholly other. God is so far beyond. He's so transcendent. Right? We're too familiar with Him in one sense. We, we, we become satisfied with where I am with God. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ is the God of all creation. He's the God who spoke into existence all that there is. He's the God who sustains everything. He's the God of heaven, the God of earth. He's the God of gods. He is the one only God, the one true only God. Incredible. He's created everything. And he's the one that I have access to. Paul says I go to him constantly. He has access to this God. Right? As do we. And so he says this to, to really set it in stone and to encourage his readers. The one to whom I go and constantly bear your name and giving thanks is this great God, who is the God of the greatest person who's ever walked on this planet, my Lord Jesus Christ. Yes? Um, and then he moves on there in verse 17. It's almost like, you know, that's not enough. This, this God, who's the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, oh, by the way, he's the Father of glory. Right? He's the Father of glory. That is fascinating. The Father of glory. So the, 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 the God of Scripture, the God of the Bible, is said here to be the Father of glory. Now, of glory can have a few different meanings. 
Um, it could be the Father which is from glory. It, is, it could be the Father which possesses glory. It could be the Father which leads to glory. And it could be the Father which dispels glory. Okay? Um, all that is grammatically possible. We're into grammar, right? So how do you choose? Well, in the context here, we're going to choose all of them. Right? And it's all possible. That, that, that the, the, the Father of glory is the one who possesses the glory. He's the Father from whom all divine glory proceeds. He's the Father who is not only the source of glory, but He's the object of glory and praise. And I would think in the context, verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14, there is where glory is used before. So the connection, is, for instance, in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace, verse 12 says that it would be to the praise of His glory. And verse 14 says at the end, to the praise of His glory. And then you get verse 17, He's the Father of the glory. That's already been mentioned. Okay, The Father, He's the Supreme One. Okay, So then, the one to whom Paul goes is to give us a, a, encouragement and assurance that the one to whom he goes has the ability to answer perfectly, accordingly. Okay? Um, if you doubt that, Paul says don't even show up to the prayer. James says don't even show up. Right? Double-minded people. Double. If you doubt God and His ability to answer, this is what this is doing. This, this, this should make the prayer meeting the biggest service of the church. Huh, Max, to understand the one to whom we come before as a body is this great, and this, this, the glory that He possesses and dispels in response to the prayers of His people. Right, and Paul says, "I constantly go before Him and take you there." I take you with me and I speak on your behalf. That's good stuff. That gets me excited, man. Doesn't it? That gets me excited. Oh, man. Um, prison, prison ministry wasn't quite so tough for Paul because he always mentally escaped into the presence of God. Right? You can't chain it. And he says here in verse 17, that's the one to whom I go. And look at what he says here in... Um, when he says in verse 17 that the, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you. Okay? <clears throat> so there's an expectation, I believe, being stirred up in this verse 17. I want you to see the first part of verse 17. Notice where it says that. Okay? Well, in the original text, this is this is a this is a purpose statement. This is this is known as a clause that because of verse sixteen, it's so that verse seventeen would happen. So Paul says, "I constantly go in the presence of God, never ceasing to give thanks on your behalf, so that God might give you the rest of verse seventeen. Right? Wow. Um, and notice his interceding on their behalf in verse seventeen. Notice." may give to you, verse 17, this is his request, this is part of his, um, his praying here, is that God may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Now, stopping there. Okay. Now he's talking to people he's assured are born again, and he's saying to them that God might give to them a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Okay. So they're already saved. The question here is, the spirit, the NAS has little s, for my spirit, 
like an attitude, a disposition. Okay, the dis- like uh, Galatians six one says, go to a brother um, and in the spirit of gentleness. Okay, that same word is used here, um, but the, the original text does not lend itself to a capital S or little s. The ESV has capital S here. Okay, what would a capital S infer? The Holy Spirit. So there's the debate. Is, is Paul saying that he wants God to give them a disposition and an attitude of wisdom and revelation? That seems strange to me. A spirit of revelation. Hmm. I think it's the Holy Spirit. He's asking for further ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now remember, every single person at the moment of conversion is indwelt by the Spirit of God. Romans 8.11 would say that, 1 Corinthians 3.16, 1 Corinthians 6.19, and other passages clearly say that at the moment of conversion, every single believer is presently and permanently indwelt by the third person of the Trinity. Okay? So this is not asking for uh, the Spirit to come and dwell. It's not asking for the more of the Spirit. It's asking for the Spirit of God to come and bring deeper and more of this. Okay, more wisdom, further wisdom. Are, are you as wise as you're going to get? I sure hope not. I'm quitting, man. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> and me either. I mean, I don't mean to go that way. And revelation. The spirit of revelation, that's an interesting word there. I think this is I think that really kicks it over to the Holy Spirit because revelation is from the Greek term apocalypsis, where we get apocalypse from, which means an uncovering, an unveiling. So this is Paul asking that the Father may give to you believers already saved, already indwelt by the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would grant wisdom and further deeper apocalypsis in the knowledge of him. Okay. Now, let me ask you this. When you were converted, did you come to know all that there is to know about God? Not only mentally, but experientially. No. So this makes sense. Right? This makes sense. So Paul, and I, I want to really camp on this because this is, this is where he starts before he even gets into the real content of his prayers in verse 18. The priority of prayer is, first of all, that the saints would grow in their understanding and personal intimate knowledge of God. There's nothing greater. There's nothing greater. There's no greater privilege, beloved, than to know God. There's no person greater. There's no thing greater. There's no greater privilege than to be known by Him and to know Him. Right? Um... There's no greater privilege. Here in verse 17, where he says that God might grant you, give you this spirit of wisdom. Okay, Wisdom, I'm going to define this, is an understanding of the gospel and the ability then to navigate this life to miss the spiritual dangers. Okay, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ability to live life in the light of the gospel under God's sovereignty. And you, you make choices that, oh, that's a pitfall, that's dangerous, I, this is a better choice. You have that ability. Okay, this is, this is a gift of the Spirit of God. He grants wisdom. Okay, so I, I think this is what he's talking about, to, to say that God would grant you a spirit of wisdom, the ability to live out the gospel in a manner worthy of God. Okay? Second, it, there where it says in verse 17, this, this spirit of, no, of revelation, the, the, as we said, apocalypsis, right, this word is to unveil or to make known. 
to make known the invisible God is also the work of the Spirit. Okay? You can't know God in this way apart from the Spirit of God. It's impossible. You cannot know God in this saving, knowing way apart from the Spirit of God. Now, we know that it's only through the Gospel. Okay? We know that. We know specifically it's, it's the, the, to know God is through His Son, Jesus Christ. We know that as the Gospel speaks of Him, as the Bible speaks of Christ. So it's not, it's not separated from Scripture. But it's, think of this. Jesus says in John 14, 9, To see me is to see the Father. Okay? He came to exegete. He came, Jesus did, to make known the invisible God. As Christ speaks, God speaks. As Christ acts, when God acts. There to know, then to know Christ is to know God. Okay? But it's more than just having the gospel. It's more than just reading the gospel and knowing the details and the historical event. He was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. Catholics know that. And they'll even say, yes, he died for me. He died for everybody. Right? But they're dead as a stick spiritually. They're not converted. Okay? So that this is, it's beyond mere intellectual assent. It's beyond just knowing the facts. It's, it's beyond just having the Bible and reading it. Right? It takes the Spirit of God to illumine your mind, to awaken your spirit and give you this personal, intimate trust in the person that you're reading about. That's what he's saying. This is what he's saying. The emphasis of prayer on the intercessory prayer for the saints is that they grow in the knowledge of God. You see, you cannot be satisfied at the moment of conversion. Yeah, I know God, I'm done with that. Check it off. Now I go do something else. That's ridiculous. That just tells me you don't know him. You see, Paul is praying for the church, first and foremost, to have this growing, deeper, personal, intimate knowledge of God. Um, That gets me excited. I want that. I want you to pray that for me. I pray that for you. You pray that for me, right? To know God. Now, the Holy Spirit must do this work of revealing, of illuminating our minds through the Scripture, not separated from the Scripture, right? In perfect harmony with the Scripture. And so think of this. We then are in desperate need, beloved, for Him, the Spirit, to act. If we are to know God and grow in this knowledge of Him, we are in desperate need of the Spirit to act. Paul says, I'm always before the Father of glory so that this process that the Spirit continued, that the Spirit initiated and started, continues to happen to the saints. Okay. Now, this idea. Go. I want to go to a few verses here, please. I hope you don't mind. Isaiah eleven, where the the idea of this of um, the Spirit of wisdom. And of revelation or of knowledge. You see the Spirit described here in, in Isaiah 11. These seven characteristics of the Spirit of God that would come upon the Messiah. But look in verse... Um, we'll start in verse 2. Well, 1 and 2 for context. Isaiah writes in 11.1, 1, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Jesse's the father of David. So it's talking, this is messianic stuff here. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And then look at how the Spirit is described in verse 2. 
the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, okay? the spirit of counsel and of strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Okay? So this, sen- this gives me confidence, okay, as the Spirit's described here, to say when Paul's asking for the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation, he's not contrary, that's not some new thought. Isaiah actually describes the Spirit in that way here in this Messianic text. Okay? Now if you go from there to the New Testament, to the book of Ephesians, look at chapter 3, please. And what I want to show here is, your, is the request in our prayer is for the Holy Spirit, if, if I'm rightly interpreting this, and there's many others who agree, so I'm not just myself here. Um, if the Holy Spirit is the one who's being beckoned, if you will, to come and grant us more wisdom, greater wisdom, and greater revelation in the knowledge of God, okay, these other passages will begin to show the same idea. So in chapter 3 of Ephesians... Pick it up in verse 3, just for the sake of time here, I want to cut through here. Um, Verse 3 down through at least 10, but notice what's being said here. Verse 3, that by revelation, Paul writes, there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. How did he come to know the insight into the mystery? By the divine revelation uh, mentioned in verse 3, okay? Verse 5, which other generations previous was not made known to the sons of men. Why were they ignorant? Because it wasn't made known to them. It takes divine revelation, okay? As it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets, notice, by the Spirit, in the Spirit. Okay? All right. Specifically, go to verse 6 as he continues here, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is what's being revealed by the Spirit. Verse 7, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power. That's the Spirit. Verse 8, to me, the very least of all saints, was this, this grace was given to preach the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. See, Christ is the object. Christ is what's being revealed. The person of God, Christ, in flesh, incarnate. Verse 9, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages had been hidden in God, who created all things. Verse 10, finally, so that the manifold wisdom, wisdom of God might now be made known, revealed through the church to the rulers in the, he- in authorities in the heavenly places. There's a whole lot going on there. But my point is this. That which they knew about Christ was made known to them by revelation, by the Spirit. They didn't, they didn't go on a hill and figure this out, right? They didn't have really sharp engineering type minds and put these pieces together and came up with this answer. It was by divine revelation. It was the Spirit's work of revealing who Christ really is to these men. Okay? All right. Wisdom's mentioned there, the Spirit's mentioned there, power's mentioned there. Earlier, in the, we're looking at Paul's prayer when he asked that God of the Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, might give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation, just as he did to the apostles. Not to the same degree, but it is requesting that the Spirit of God would do a work. 
Okay? And if he's unceasingly going before God, this is not a one-time deal. This is a constant deal. It's a constant need then, is it not? I constantly need to know more of God. This is Paul's request. Go to the left, please, to uh, 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2. Again, this idea of revelation, this idea of the Spirit working and in, in revealing things that are otherwise hidden and not known, and particularly about God, particularly about Christ. This should be very encouraging to us because I'm, I'm, I'm indwelt by the Spirit. Right? And so are you. Chapter 2, look at verse, we'll pick it up in verse 7 just for the sake of time. I probably could go back even further, but uh, look at verse 7 here. He says, But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden which God predestined before the ages to our glory, verse 8, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So wisdom is being applied to Jesus Christ here. Okay, In some sense, the wisdom of God in this text is being directly linked to the Lord of glory. Okay, Now, go on here, verse 9. But just as it is written in verse 9, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. Verse 10. For to us God revealed them. How? Through the Spirit. Verse 10, through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Do you see how incredible this is? The third person of the Trinity is said to be the one who searches the depths of God. The infinite God. You cannot do that. You and I cannot do that. In fact, we will spend all eternity being basking in the glories of God, which is infinite in in who He is. But yet here it says, how great is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, in verse 10, is the one who searches the deep things of God. And He makes it known to whom He wishes to make known. This is the text here. Verse 11, for who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Do you see his his parallel here? Just like you, I don't know what you're thinking right now, right? But you do. He then takes that parallel in verse 11 and says, Even so, the thoughts of God, which no one can tap out, no one knows except the Spirit of God. How glorious is that? He then says in 12, Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of who is from God. Now he's talking about the apostles here in the original sense. Okay, Verse 12, Not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Why? So that we may know the things freely given to us by God. To know them intimately. How do we know these things about Christ? How do you know the Bible's trustworthy? Even when a person's first saved, hasn't read the whole Bible, trusts the Bible to be the Word of God and willing to risk their life. How do they do that? Because of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God reveals that to them. How do you all of a sudden, tell me this, Oppose Christ, hate Christ, no way, foolish. And in a moment, you're willing to take up your cross and follow Him to your death. How do you explain that? It's the Spirit of God who comes and gives you that knowledge. This is what He's saying. 
This is glorious. It's awesome. The too smug, too easily satisfied evangelical church needs to be rebuked because as though God has been tapped out. I know all I have to know about God. I'm just, I got all my doctrinal T's crossed and I'm satisfied. No way. No way. Right? I have tasted and I'm coming back for more. This is what Paul is saying in his prayer. Lord, I pray for your church that the Spirit of God would grant them wisdom and, and apocalypsis in the knowledge of God. Every time he went before him, according to Ephesians, every time he went before God, he said these things. He requested these things. I want your spirit to illumine their minds to the deep things of God. Yes. Oh, that's good. Think about that just for a moment. If that's where Paul is starting in the spirit moving Paul as he writes, this is where it begins. It begins with our intimate personal knowledge of God. Everything flows out of that. Everything flows out of that. Doesn't it? That's where worship takes place. That's where worship is initiated. That's where right worship is in my heart that God has changed and He's taken up residence. And as I grow in my knowledge of Him and my knowing of Him, my personal intimate relationship with Him that's vibrant and living. He's a living person. He's not some theoretical idea. He is, he's more, he is more a person than you and I will ever be a person. He's the ultimate person. And yet I treat Him like He's like this. This is what Paul is saying. No. It takes the Spirit to reveal that to me. It takes the Spirit to cause me to walk with God and to love God. A personal, intimate relationship. Isn't that what eternal life is? John seventeen three. this is eternal life, in case you're wondering. To know God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. And the word know there is not intellectual knowledge. The Pharisees knew a whole lot of Scripture, but they did not know God. John 16, it even says, they're going to kill you, saints, because they don't know the Father or me. <laughs> right? And yet they know the Scripture. Yeah. Nothing. I don't know where I'm going, but go back to Ephesians, please. Um... This is this is this is scary for some because it's experiential, and you have to be you have to be careful, right? Um, but I don't want the charismaniacs to steal my walk with God and what the Bible says is for me. You know what I'm saying? If you don't experience God, I worry for you. He's alive. He's living. If he is indeed has taken up residence in me, would that not change me? <laughs> would that not change my perspective of God and my walk with him? I mean, you know, and I'm, this is what Paul was praying for. Back to Ephesians, if you've drifted away, look at verse 17 again, please. He says that this God of our Christ, Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and then the last phrase here, in the knowledge of Him. This, this uncovering, this, this revelation is in the, ep, 
the, 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 this word knowledge here is an awesome word, and it, it intensifies the word knowledge. It goes beyond just mere intellectual assent. It has to do with a true knowledge, a complete knowledge. There's a preposition attached to the main verb, right? So it's this idea of possessing a full knowledge, which is often translated in the Hebrew, yada, which has to mean in different ways, but it's used in Genesis 4 when Adam knew his wife, right? Well, he doesn't know intellect. He knows, obviously, he knows more of the intellectual facts, but it has to do with this relations. He knew her and she conceived. Well, it didn't come from knowing her shirt size, right? He knew her. This is the same idea. So, what he's saying is that the Spirit, may He come in His, in his prayers, may the Spirit come and uncover more of this personal, intimate relationship with God. Yeah. So that you can say, I have tasted that the Lord is good. What does taste imply? Experience. I have tasted of Him, and He is good. Paul's basically saying, Lord, give them more taste. Give them more taste. It's kind of like the bread of life and Jesus says in John 6, I'm the bread of life. Anyone who comes to me will never hunger or never thirst. Right? What is he saying? I will fully satisfy the truly seeking heart who comes to me so that you'll never go anywhere else to find what I give you because you will be satisfied in your soul. Not satisfied to contentment in the sense of no more seeking, but satisfied in the sense no more searching other places. Man, I'm going there. I'm going there. I have tasted of the Lord. And he is good. And so Paul is praying that. That's the work of the Spirit. That he would do that. Give them this full knowledge. This, this, this deep, now get this, this, this deep, personal, intimate, experiential knowing. Okay? That comes from time. That comes from that, that truth of God being revealed to you and you spending time. That's time-oriented. It takes time to know people, doesn't it? This speaks of this. Give them this, give them this vision, this view, this taste. Then it takes time to settle in on that. So it's a deep, personal, intimate, experiential knowing. It is a relational word, this, this knowledge of God here in verse 17. It really depicts and describes a life. This is the spiritual life of the New Covenant, of the New Testament. It is the new life of a genuine believer to know God in this way. Think of this. Before salvation, you and I were spiritually dead. We had no spiritual life, separated from the life of God. In fact, if you went to Ephesians 4, you have to see this on Wednesday nights. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. But in Ephesians 4, look at 17 and 18. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, so the unbelievers, in the futility of their mind. Look at what else he says in verse 18. Being darkened in their understanding, excluded or alienated from, notice, the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. Okay? That's how I was before Christ came. That's how you were before Christ came. This is how you were before the Holy Spirit came and opened your eyes and gave you life. You were darkened in your understanding. 
How many times have you shared the clear, simple gospel to some unbeliever and they say, I just don't understand that. What do you mean you don't understand that? <laughs> Can't get any clearer than what I just told you. What do you mean you don't understand that? I don't understand that. Well, this is why. It takes the Spirit even to understand the simple gospel. You see? But this is how we were beforehand. And so when the prayer is that God would grant us this further revelation, a greater understanding of the knowledge of God, this is what he's saying. We once were like this, but now we are like this. And now we're like this in God. And we want more. We want more. You see, apart from the work of the Spirit, we continue in spiritual blindness and deadness. The initial work of the Spirit, think of this, the initial work of the Spirit in our conversion, when He made us alive in Christ, He opened our eyes he, 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 um, to see the glories of Christ, he, he, to trust in Him, to, to love Him, to know Him personally, to desire Him above all other persons, all other things. God did that in your life. Can I show you a few places that will add to this? I hope... This should bless us. Second Corinthians four, please. Again, Paul is basically asking in his prayer that that which the Spirit began, he would continue to do. And in Second Corinthians four, this is an awesome text. We can pick it up in three and go to six. Very clear here. Even if our gospel is veiled, shrouded, it is veiled so you can't see, to those who are perishing. Perishing is a word for going to hell. Okay? Alright. Verse 4, in whose case, the ones perishing, the little g God of this world, Satan, has blinded, notice, the minds of the unbelieving, What's the result of that demonic, satanic blindness? Verse 4, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, is it any wonder they didn't understand your gospel? Because not only are they spiritually dead, they have satanic blindness, and they cannot see the radiant, glorious Christ from your gospel. They can't get there. Verse 5 is our response. How is this overcome? We preach Christ as Lord. That's how satanic blindness is overcome. Our part is to preach Christ as Lord. Verse 6 is God's part. But look what he does here. Verse 6 says, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, that's Genesis 1-3, is the one who has... Shown in our hearts, and what is the what is the result of the the illuminating power of God in verse six? Notice, please, He has shown in our hearts to give the light in the what in the knowledge of the glory of God. Where in the face of Christ? How do you come to embrace Christ? as the image of God, as deity, as the glory of God. How do you come to understand that? This is saying because God said, let there be light. It's not a progress. It's supernatural. You're not becoming a little more alive when you were dead. You're dead and you're alive. Right? It's not a process. 
God says, let there be light. And guess what the result is? Ah, I see you. I know who you are. You're more than the babe in the manger. You're in the beginning with God. And all things were created through you. How do you know that? I don't know. I just know that. It's because the Spirit gave you that. And more than that intellectual embrace is that now it settles down into your soul and now it's conviction that you're willing to live and die for. And your love, because to know Christ is to love Christ. You cannot say, I love, I, I know Him and not love Him. So what He's saying, the Spirit to come and to give you wisdom and more love for Christ, more love for Him, more understanding of His love for you. And that takes you to... to to Ephesians 3 in the second prayer, Paul, to know the love of God in Christ. It's amazing. You see, we haven't tapped out God yet. <laughs> we haven't, we haven't, we haven't, yeah, I know that. Yeah, I know that. I, I'm so saddened by coming across believers who've been in the church for many years and they're like bored. That shows how cold and sinful they are, frankly. Right? Apathy is not because of maturity. Apathy is because of sinfulness. Right? It's not because of maturity. I have tasted and I want more of him. And Paul prays, Lord, give them more. Teach them more. Go to Colossians 1. We'll be winding down here. Colossians 1. And I wanted to emphasize this first part of Paul's prayer and didn't want to blow through this because knowing God is is the most important thing you could ever do, ever know. The most incredible privilege you have is to know Jesus Christ. There's nothing greater. Colossians 1, look at verse 9. Written from the same Roman house imprisonment. The apostle writes, verse 9, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we, we have not ceased to pray for you, very similar, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Very similar, verse 10, so that, what's the result of that that He prayed for? Verse 10, you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. And look at the last phrase in 10. What does yours say? Increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing is a participle. That's present tense. What does that mean? Increasing. It's not static. It's growing. Do you need to increase in the knowledge of God? I hope so. I hope you're not satisfied with what you know to where you're now. You no longer search Him. You no longer seek Him. Pursue Him. Maybe that's a better word. Yeah? Go to Galatians 4. The work of the Spirit again, and, I, and I, I felt led here because of the work of the Spirit and the intimacy. Okay, Notice what the Spirit does in Galatians 4, and look at verse 6. Because you are sons, that's an indicative statement, that's a fact. God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. And what is the result of that? Do you see it? Abba, Father. 
Well, you know from further studies and previous studies, you've been in the church, Abba is, a, is an Aramaic term, most likely that speaks of affinity, of, of adoration, of, of um, some people would say, like I think MacArthur would say, it's kind of like daddy, okay? It's, you, do you see where he's going here? The Holy Spirit as a result of his, his work in us and taking up residence in us as the sons of God through faith in Christ, what he does in us is reveal to us the intimacy of God. And so that we no longer say, Oh God, we say Father. We say Daddy. We say Papa. My heart is breaking and I need you. I'm able to do that and I have confidence that He hears me because of the indwelling Holy Spirit in my life. And He makes me trust Him. I know God is my daddy. He might be your God in far distance, but He's my daddy. Right? He is my papa. Right? And this is what the Spirit does in our life, beloved. And Paul's praying that the church would come to know this more and more. To have this intimate, personal experience in this intimacy with God that we call Him daddy. That's good stuff. Let us fight for that. That's where joy settles in. That's where joy, true joy, is rooted and cannot be removed, man. God is my daddy. Romans 8 says the same thing. Romans 8 says basically the same thing, that the Spirit moves in us and causes us and gives us that trust and that intimacy that the God of the universe is my daddy. (laughs) Wow. He's my father. Okay. Now, back to Ephesians, please. So this is what you're going to be praying for me. So I I hope you're getting this. This is why I'm hammering this. This is your job. To pray this for Tony. We'll start with Tony and then bleed out to everybody else. All right. Um, In verse 17, right, to, to give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in this personal, intimate experiential knowledge of God. He's, he's then, as he says this, right, to know God personally, intimately, is our greatest privilege, as we've said. To know Him in this way is certainly the grace of God. It is the work of the Spirit. He has chosen you for this purpose. Okay? Think of this. He, pers- he chose you before time, but He pursued you to apprehend you, to rescue you, to convert you to himself, to indwell you with his spirit. You, he has chosen to have this vibrant relationship with him, okay? To possess eternal life, which as we've already read in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, to know God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent so isn't that fascinating that eternal life is not so much longevity because everybody's going to live forever somewhere, either heaven or hell, even separated from God forever or in the presence of God. There's only two places. Eternal life is a quality of life, a kind of life, not longevity, not duration, but kind the New Testament would tell us the kind of life it is is this personal, intimate knowledge with God. That's eternal life. Man. Sign me up. I pray that for you. I have, but this text has blessed me so much. It has changed, it has changed my whole perspective. 
And I trust, I can't wait to see what God does when a group of people are caught up praying for each other in this way. It goes beyond the mundane. You know what I'm saying? Think about how it is. I'm almost finished. Um, This is not a one-time act because he's constantly going before God. So this is a constant request of his, a constant motivation of his. Therefore, it's because it's a constant need of theirs and of ours. I need this to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Second Peter three seventeen and 18, somewhere in there. Um, so then, no one has come to a sufficient relationship with God that results in the ceasing of the pursuit of Him. Okay? No one... Anyone who has ceased really pursuing God, it isn't because they have come to tap him out. Okay? A complacency in this pursuit of God is an expression of my spiritual deficiencies, not my maturity. It expresses my coldness, my sin, my unbelief, not my righteousness. Okay? If I have tasted of him, I will be the one who's chasing after him, pursuing him. I have to show you. Go to Philippians 3. And if you notice, this was Paul's life. What he's praying for is no different than what he wanted for himself. In Philippians 3, 7 and 8 anyway, look at this, his passion here. This is what he's praying for. This is kind of the foundation of his prayer, verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So Christ is that which has caused his evaluation of everything to be reconstructed. Okay? And he says whatever things were. So he's looking backwards. I have counted. That's backwards. Okay? Verse 8 more than that, I count, now it's present, see? Verse 7 was counted, past tense. Now in 8, I count, present, all things to be loss. And what is it that has caused such a drastic change? Do you see it in verse 8? What is it? The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Paul likes the word surpassing. It means to surpass, <laughs> to go beyond. There's a line, it means to go beyond it. He's saying here that everything I thought was a treasure, everything that I thought was important, everything that I had put in my gain column that would earn my, my applause from God has been all reevaluated, And I put it all in a big bucket to toss it over the sea into the depths of the ocean because it's worthless compared to my new treasure. And my new treasure is to know Jesus Christ personally. This is what he says. Do you know Jesus Christ in this manner? Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord, as your personal friend? Do you know him as your brother? 
Do you know him? Or is he some far distant theoretical conception that you get from the scriptures, but you're not intimate with him? How, assault, how insulting. He's a person. Be like treating your wife like a pitcher, you know? You don't, you don't even really have any relationship with her, but you treat her like a pitcher. You know, you always clean her off and stuff. That's wonderful. Right? Make sure she's straight on the wall. But you don't have intimate relationship. So Paul's saying here in verse 8 that knowing Christ Jesus, personal, intimate, experiential knowledge of Christ is what surpasses everything in his life and caused him to cause everything to be dung. Throw it away, as it says, I have suffered the loss of all things, verse 8, and count them but rubbish, dung, scuba so that I may gain Christ. Anything that interfered with his growing and gaining of Christ, he saw it as dung. <laughs> he, just, he just saw it as absolutely worthless. I wonder how much dung I treasure. Put it like that, it's like, whoa, I better reevaluate this thing. Let me sit down and think about this, right? I'm going to lay down my life for dung. Hmm. That's what Paul's saying. No matter what it is, compared to Jesus Christ, to knowing Him, how great must it be to know Him? How, how thrilled must Paul have been in the depths of his soul? Really? experientially, right? How thrilling must he have been from the relationship with Christ that would cause him to be so radical. This is probably normal, not radical. Let's pray for each other that way. Lord, grant us a spirit of wisdom and apocalypsis in the knowledge of God that we would know him in like this. That we would not live our life for dung, but for Christ. Right? Amen. Isn't God so gracious? He's so patient. It's almost like, well, it's all right if you want to do it that way. You know, you want to, you want to drink out of broke cisterns when you can have living water. That's okay if you want to do it that way. Right? You want to chase dung around, that's okay. It's kind of weird, but when you have me, right? Fascinating. Fascinating, fascinating. Now, since we're in Philippians 3, I'm going to make one reference and then we'll finish. Because think about what he's saying here. He's praying this increase in this understanding and knowledge of God, what it means to know Him. Okay, It's not separated from the Scriptures. It's not separated from the Gospel. Okay, Because that's, that's where you're mind is informed okay but it's beyond that right and so so it's it's not just having the scriptures and knowing and reading it, it takes the spirit to illumine but also he takes our life experiences to hammer these things home and most often the knowledge of god becomes more clear through suffering through afflictions because that's where he strips us bare that's when he proves wow I've been chasing scubala, right? So he moves in our hearts through suffering. He proves to ourselves who he is to a more clearer, deeper way through suffering. 
So much so that like Paul, it tastes so good that you almost long for the trials because of what he does in them. There's some things in my life I wouldn't want to do again, but I wouldn't change them. I wouldn't change them because God is living and active and he makes himself known to you. So don't resent trials and suffering. Don't avoid trials and suffering sinfully, but embrace them. Embrace them. Look at verse 10 of Philippians 3 and then I promise... I'll try to leave you alone. Look at verse 10. This comes off the heels of verse 8. The main thought in verse 8 is counting all things lost. The end of 8 says that I may gain Christ. Okay, that's one. Verse 9 begins that I may be found in Him. That's two. The third result of this new evaluation for Christ, verse 10, that I may know Him. That I may know Him. Okay, So I count all things lost in view of the surpassing knowledge of Christ. Verse 10 says, I do that so that I may know Him. Okay, Alright. And notice how he defines in verse 10 what it means to know Him. Do you see this two-pronged here? He says, In the power of His resurrection and the what? Fellowship of His sufferings. Why does he put those two parallels? Because it takes the power of the resurrection to endure the fellowship of the sufferings. It takes the power of the resurrection to fully understand the koinonia of the suffering. How else am I going to know how bright he is if he doesn't put me in a dark hole? How else will I know just how wonderfully powerful he is if he doesn't put me in a situation that doesn't require his power? Do you see what I'm saying? This is what he's saying. To know Christ. So anything that comes in the way of knowing Him, including suffering, he says, scuba luck, get out of the road. I want Christ. And I trust Him. He will show me. He will take me through the valley of the shadow of death. He will never leave me. I won't be afraid. He'll prove Himself over and over and over. And the Spirit comes and makes Himself known to me over and over and deeper and deeper penetration. And so that my knowledge, my love, my personal experience with Christ grows deeper and deeper. And what is the result of that? is a life lived for the glory of Him. It's a life lived in a manner worthy of Him. It's a life lived under the grand umbrella of loving for Christ. Because to know Him is to love Him. And isn't that the most important thing? To love Christ and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what God is doing. So then let us learn from Paul these things. Seek God with all your heart, prayerfully for yourself. Seek Him. Ask God to illumine His truth and to take us down His path, trusting Him. Trust Him through, through paths that He's chosen. Right? Seek Him with all your heart. Pray. Commit to pray. Not only for yourselves, that's easy. But pray for others, like Paul did. Take them before this great God constantly. And pray this way, that God would do this great work with His Spirit.
and then listen to, to Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, and then I'll pray. <laughs> Old Testament, by the way. Thus says Yahweh, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. Uh, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. You want to brag? Shock and unbelievers say, I know God. And that's not arrogant. That's true. And it's grace. So, let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your amazing grace that has uncovered yourself to us and you have given us knowledge of yourself and you have caused us to embrace you. You have caused us to, to set aside things that used to be so dominant in our lives because compared to you, they are scubala. They are nothing. Oh, Father, continue to do a work in our hearts of us here. I pray that Paul's prayer becomes more and more active in a reality in our life, more of an intentional focus. I pray on behalf of your people, Lord God, that your Spirit would come and grant them a wisdom and a revelation and the knowledge of you, and that they would grow in that, ever grow in that, and their love for you would just exponentially grow, and people would look at this body and be thrilled, be, be, be drawn to because they know God. So come and do this, Father, for your name's sake. And to that end we pray. Amen.